women are socialized so deeply to prioritize the experience of other people that it requires the permission to center yourself. Most women and people with vulvas tend to fall into the responsive category. And I think it's just so important for you to understand how your desire works because uh, a lot of us feel like we're broken and you're not broken. It's just your desire functions in a different way. And a lot of women will say to me, well, that feels selfish. You know, I don't want to just prioritize my own pleasure. But the reality is we're responsible for our own orgasms and for our own pleasure. So until we're ready to center ourselves, we can't expect a partner to fully center us. Hola, and welcome to another episode of Podher. Today we're talking about sexual wellness, and I'm super excited to have two guests that are true experts on this topic. Dr. Kate Palestrieri is a psychologist, a certified sex, sex addiction, and PACT therapist. She is the founder of Modern Intimacy, a group therapy practice with locations in Los Angeles, Miami, New York City, Denver, and Chicago. She's also the host of two podcasts, Modern Intimacy and Without Consent. Natasha Miller is the founder and CEO of Wonderlust, a sexual wellness company that helps couples build a fulfilling sex life. She's a political science graduate from Columbia University and a sexuality educator based in New York City. Today we'll discuss a little bit of everything, from the joys of self-pleasure, to tips on improving your sex life with a partner, and we're also diving deeper into some of the common misconceptions about female sexuality. I really hope you enjoyed this episode today, and I hope it inspires you to see pleasure as a form of self-care. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm thrilled to have you both here. Thank you for having us. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. I can't wait to dive into all the fun details and learn more from both of you. Would you mind sharing a little bit about why you decided to focus your careers on sexual wellness? I'll let you jump in, Dr. Kate. Sure. First, thanks for having me here. This is really such a great conversation. And I think what got me started in the sexual wellness space was earlier in my career as a psychologist. I worked primarily as a forensic psychologist and I treated civilly and criminally committed sex offenders. And in my work with sex offenders, I uh, really realized just the absence of sex education that they had. And mm. that was such an important component to the offending patterns of many of the offenders. So when I started looking at their recovery, I really realized there was this chasm in their understanding about how to have healthy sex, how to prioritize pleasure without boundary violations, and how to really understand all of the different kinds of sex that are available without being predatory. So that was sort of my introduction into sexual wellness. And as I went into private practice, I realized people who are not sex offenders also didn't have a lot of education about sex and were struggling with similar ideas of how to have healthy sex that felt empowering and dimensional and important and creative. So it's just been a really fun landscape to be in. So I think my approach is a little bit more peer-based where I used to work in finance and always was a wellness enthusiast. 
um, ended up starting another wellness company that um, faced a lot of headwinds during COVID. And um, we decided to end the company. And then I, I was reflecting on like, what do I really wanted to do after this and already had really enjoyed being an entrepreneur. And I've always been that person who has so much ease in talking about sex and relationships, um, especially with friends and realizing how people don't have that facility. I saw this opportunity, like we say in Portuguese, like you uh, unite to what's like practical and what you like. To... Muito agradável. Yes. And so I decided to pursue a career in sexual wellness and I decided to found Wonderlust and focus on couples because I think couples go through so many different stages in their relationships, intimacy, and it's so hard to navigate. In the process of building out Wonderlust, I ended up going viral on TikTok and just really focusing on sharing uh, evidence-based research So that's the path that has led me to where I'm at today. And it's really exciting and I love it. That's fantastic. And I love how you're focusing on communication between couples because I yeah. think that's something that so many of us struggle. Exactly. So I think before we start this conversation, I just wanted to acknowledge that sexual health is health. Absolutely. I really think we overlook the benefits of sexuality when we come from a place of purity in a place of shame around sex. And the reality is that sex can be a form of exercise and the endorphins that are released during sex and the other neurochemicals that are released during sex can have a, a pain reducing element. They can help with stress reduction, the oxytocin that is released during skin to skin contact and after orgasm can obliterate cortisol in the body, which can help us feel a lot more grounded and um, ready for the day and, and can help with nervous system regulation. So whether solo or partnered, sex offers many physical benefits and mental health benefits. For sure. And also when we talk about this, my mind goes straight to the what some people call the pleasure gap, uh, which means women experience less sexual pleasure than men? I mean, it's based on how we are brought up and conditioned. Uh, women and people with vulvas are brought up to be, to appease more and uh, to be nice and agreeable. And so we have a really hard time expressing our needs in general in life. We've been taught that we need to prioritize others. And so the woman is always seen as like leaving herself last and that reflects in you know a woman's relationship in bed as well of having a really hard time of expressing you know your own needs and what it is that you desire and really prioritizing your partner's pleasure so that is something that just comes from how we're conditioned um growing up and and men have always been placed first and this is a long conversation of course um But for them, they've always just been given the permission to explore themselves sexually. And, um, you know, fathers share that, you know, they're going to grow up and they're going to hook up with all the women. And, um, you know, we hear that a lot in Brazil as well. And uh, while women are supposed to fit into this, you know, purity culture and they have the, their virginity to preserve. And there's also an issue that we just don't explore our bodies and we don't even know what our vulvas look like 
So it's really like we're talking about just the the really basic foundational things that prevent us from connecting to our sexual selves and enjoying enjoying sex. And the only way that they're, we're going to be able to close that pleasure gap is when we work towards getting to know um, ourselves and like looking at our vulvas in a mirror and start touching ourselves without feeling any shame or disgust. I think it touched on two such important topics. One is shame. I think that is such a big thing for women. And also how all of this comes, or at least most of it comes from socialization. And so how we learned to look at ourselves. So it's always very important to make that very clear distinction. Um, what do you think are some strategies for women to understand their bodies a little bit more and get rid of that shame? I think one of the things that's so, so, so important is a sense of awareness that everyone is entitled to pleasure and none of us are entitled to pleasure with another person's body without their consent. And I think that is really a key shift for a lot of women to start with is understanding the necessity of pleasure equity and partnering with people who also prioritize equal pleasure but making sure that you have the same definition of what that mutuality looks like. Because with a lot of straight men or men who have sex with women, there's often a tremendous blind spot that they have around the idea of women's pleasure. There's research out there that talks about error management theory. And basically what this theory supposes is that men overestimate the amount of attraction that women have to them based on how much attraction they have to men, or how, excuse me, how much attraction they have to women. And this comes through in sex as well. So men often overestimate the amount of pleasure a woman is having based on the amount of pleasure they're having, or their need to be perceived as someone who gives pleasure readily. So I think it's really important to have conversations with partners about what pleasure looks like, how does a partner know you're in pleasure, and if you don't know the answers to those questions, it's really important to give yourself time and space to explore. And you can do that on your own, or you can do it with a partner and say, hey, I really want to take some time to not make orgasm the goal, but instead focus on what I like in my body, what sensations feel good. So let's take some time to play without a focus of penetration, maybe, or without a focus on orgasm, just so I can get to know my body. And sometimes that requires a bit of slowing down, which sometimes can be difficult to ask for, because as Natasha said, women are socialized so deeply to prioritize the experience of other people that it requires the permission to center yourself. And a lot of women will say to me, well, that feels selfish. You know, I don't want to just prioritize my own pleasure. But the reality is we're responsible for our own orgasms and for our own pleasure. So until we're ready to center ourselves, we can't expect a partner to fully center us without that motivation being for them too. And I deeply believe that people give more pleasure if they're generally invested in, yeah. in that own self-pleasure. I think that's the beauty of it. It really benefits everybody. Mm-hmm. What do you think are some of the common myths and misconceptions about female sexuality? I'll chime in with like one thing that for sure I've heard since, you know, I was so young, but that women have a lower libido than men. 
when a woman has more desire than her partner, she'll be like, yeah, I'm like a man. I have high libido, right? And that that wording in and of itself is so harmful. And um, I have a high libido and that has generated a lot of shame in the past because I didn't, I wasn't educated around the fact that this is perfectly normal for a woman and for a woman to express her sexuality and feel comfortable in that, you know, also pursue her partner just the way that we've also been taught in terms of dating that the man should always be pursuing the woman that also prevents us from initiating sex so it's perfectly normal if you have a higher libido than than your male partner and it's just such a big misconception yeah absolutely absolutely and the heteronormative double bind is such that women are conditioned to say no to sex and yes to emotional connection until they're married and men are conditioned to say no to emotional connection and yes to sex until they're married. So the ways that we are conditioned play a ginormous role in how we approach sex and how we integrate our relationship with sex into our identity and our sense of self-worth. So a lot of women will experience shame if they act on their urges and initiate sex. And they shouldn't because it's completely normal to want to experience pleasure and it's healthy. But the ways that um, patriarchy and society have conditioned women to feel ashamed of their bodies, ashamed of their desire for pleasure and ashamed of the desire for sex has really disconnected generations of women from their autonomy in this process. So for any women listening, I hope one thing you take away from this conversation is pleasure is a right and it is something you can always initiate with yourself and ask for with other people without fear of thinking that you are bad or wrong or somehow too much because you're not. Yeah, everything comes from our relationship with ourselves, right? It always, always starts there. Let's move on to vibrators. Uh, a lot of people are hesitant or never, I have friends that never try them. So for somebody that never tried, but are kind of curious, so what would be the first step? Uh, I think if you've never tried it, the easiest route into it, if you have a vulva, is to buy a bullet vibrator. It's small, it's easy for you to use it, and it's just um, a great way for you to start applying that vibration um, in, you know, around your vulva and closer to your clitoris. And then, you know, and it helps with the buildup and it's not this intimidating, huge, intimate device that you don't know how to, uh, don't know how to use. So I think that that would be my advice for somebody who has never bought an intimate device before. But if you have never had an orgasm, it ends up being really the first opportunity for people with vulvas to, to have an orgasm, to experience it. So I understand why some people get worried that once they start using a vibrator, they're not going to be able to have an orgasm without it. And I've heard that from many friends. And um, there are conflicting studies around this uh, of your of the effect that it has on your nerve endings in the clitoris long term. And the truth is just that we don't have enough studies around it, uh, unfortunately, but I think that you need to do whatever feels good for you. It's just really important for you to also diversify. And but I think that like for people that have, you know, are, are trying to explore their pleasure 
it can be a really great way for you to do so. Yeah. I really appreciate you bringing that up, Natasha. I get that question a lot. Will using a vibrator numb me out? Will it ruin my vulva? And the answer is no. It, it will not permanently affect um, any sensation in the vulva but or, or in the clitoris. But what can happen is that our body organizes a relationship with pleasure based on certain kinds of movements, sensations, and processes. So what you said about diversifying is so important, right? When we teach our bodies to experience pleasure with lots of different kinds of pleasurable stimulation, then we have a more expansive catch for all kinds of orgasmic potential. But for folks who tend to do the same movement over and over again, it's not that their vulva or clitoris is numbed out or, or desensitized. It's that their brain says, oh, I know pleasure's coming this way because this is how pleasure always arrives. Exactly. I'm very glad I heard that. I think, it's, <laughs> but it's such a good point. I think, especially as women, we have such a hard time understanding how we find pleasure. When we actually mm -hmm. find it, it's like, all right, that's the answer. And we get very comfortable because I think the diversifying does not come naturally. It's such a good point. I wonder where, what are some ways of doing that in terms of masturbation? Would you use different toys? Would you do different positions? What, what things do you think we could do? Um, I think diversify between different types of toys and, you know, what, what kind of pleasure that you want to stimulate. But then I also think it's really important for you to go acapella and just use your hands and have patience. But when you teach yourself how to use your hands, it's also really empowering because you know that you don't depend on anything else, especially if, if you're in situations where you don't have an intimate device around and then you feel like, oh, I'm not going to be able to have an orgasm this time or to pleasure myself because it's not there. Like, you know how to use your hands. And I, I think it's just, it requires patience. It requires exploration. I think some advice is try different positions, whether you're lying down, whether you're on all fours. And I'm talking, yeah, this is masturbation, right? Where you're sitting down. And I would just think about how not only are you using your hands, but also how you're using your breath. Um, I've noticed, you know, talking to people that a lot of times they may hold their breath in as they're you know, kind of reaching that peak and they don't know how to navigate the breath work. But I found and other people found as well that like when you breathe through that, you can actually increase the amount of pleasure that you have and also consequently have stronger orgasms. And then along with the breath work, I would also advise to um, touch yourself in other parts of your body, you know, stimulate your breasts, squeeze your thighs, like just find what works for you, but be patient and see this. I think sometimes we take ourselves too seriously when it comes to sex and sex should be more playful, right? Yes. Word. <laughs> sex should be fun. And, and there are so many ways to um, introduce sensory play. And I think that's something that a lot of women deprive themselves of because we're so used to depriving ourselves in service of other people. So I love that. Um, that recommendation about using your hands or using a pillow. Centrubation is a kind of masturbation where you squeeze your thighs together and allow for the sensation of pulling or tugging on the labia or the clitoris through 
pressure from the thighs, that can be really pleasurable for people. Taking baths, using water, using ice, or finding an arousal serum that has a warmer, tingly sensation can be a, a great way to change things up. But we have so many different accessories just in the kitchen, in your home, in an intimate toy store, the opportunity is to get creative, right? And to never stop giving yourself the experience of exploration. The fact that sex should be fun and playful, I think that is so central. And it makes me also think about body image because I think when we take ourselves so seriously, as you said, and we are so focused on like, mm -hmm. is this angle good? Is my face weird? Yeah. And then it's so difficult to be fully present in the moment if you're not feeling good about yourself. I think it, it takes out the playfulness. Yeah. Actually, that makes me think, Natasha, if you, in your work, and explain to us a little bit about the cards that you created for couples, but if there is any of this thought process in there in terms of like how people can feel more comfortable in their bodies and explore themselves in the present moment. Yeah, uh, we have plenty of prompts that are around that and really try to bring in that positive psychology into it of like, what do you appreciate about, you know, your own body and your partner's body. And it's it's really about thinking of how you can um, start looking at yourself, because really, that's, that's the key thing. It's really when you actually hear you interview couples, normally, like your partner isn't looking at your body and thinking, you know, negatively about it. Like that's something that you are putting on yourself, right? Or you're worried that you haven't taken a shower or that you haven't shaved, right? These are such common worries. And honestly, like your partner is not, they don't care about that. Like they... Yeah, we don't do that as well, right? It's so funny. We're like so focused on the other person's perception of us that like that and that's the internalized male gaze right at its core right, right. um right. Uh, regardless of of whether you're you know in bed with uh, with you know someone who has a penis or a vulva right. um but but it is it is something that that we really hold and that prevents us from genuinely enjoying sex but but truth is is that our partners really aren't focused on that and, and we're just putting it upon ourselves so that's definitely a component of the uh, intimacy deck that we have for couples. But it's also an opportunity where if you have a hard time communicating what it is that you like, which most of us do, smaller exercises that are, are non-sexual in nature, which is, you know, um, giving your partner a hand massage and like having to specify exactly how you want that massage. Like it feels really good at this point right here. Oh, I want you to move a little bit more to the left. The, like this is one of the exercises that we have in the intimacy deck because through studies, it's been proven that when you, when you do practice being very specific with these other exercises, that that empowers you to then communicate your needs in bed. So these are small ways for you to start gaining. It all ties in together, but both you realizing that having a more positive body image and that your partner really actually does praise you and desires you, and you also learn how to communicate better, like that will allow you to then enjoy sex and just in general feel more desire in your life and in your relationship. That's so true. Kate, you talked about something that I think relates to this, which is like how sometimes partners, regardless of gender, 
they only approach their partners when they want to initiate sex. Mm. One of the complaints I hear most frequently from people with vulvas is that there's not enough non-sexual touch or intimacy in their relationships to inspire eroticism when the moment for sexual intimacy is present. And instead, what they experience is their partner only touching or kissing them when their partner wants to initiate sex. And mm. look, if some if, if people are down for that and it works in their relationship, that's great. I'm not here to yuck someone's yum. But so often the case is that the partner who only touches the other partner when they're initiating sex is kind of oblivious to the fact that doing that leaves their partner feeling objectified, used, not cared for, and uninspired sexually. And that's really hard to go from zero to sexually interested when there's right. not been the, cultiv the cultivation of any kind of spark throughout the day. So I like to remind couples that foreplay starts the minute your last sexual experience ends. And everything that you do and every interaction that you have either builds new momentum toward your next sexual experience or it takes away. So it's important to really think about how are you intentionally creating interest and spark and energy between the two of you that can foster erotic excitement. Oof, I love this phrase that foreplay starts when sex ends. Um, I'm going to keep that one. I think that is so on point. Um, and I think and I wonder if a lot of what we're talking about here has to do with pornography and how we kind of learn what sex means and looks like from those images. One thing that's super important to remember is that erotic material has been around since the dawn of time, right? Human beings are visual people, we're auditory people, we are textural people, so we respond to things that are stimulating sensorily. But the way that uh, mainstream pornography has been created and consumed reflects the misogyny that exists in our patriarchal society. So does it make it inherently bad? I think if there's exploitation involved in its creation, yes. Outside of that, no. But we do have to look at how do we consume it? How do we demand for its ethical production? And how does that consciousness allow us to be present with pleasure when the fantasy that we know on screen has been curated in a way that doesn't harm other people in real life? So I think that porn can be great, but definitely porn literacy is a huge component in allowing that to be the case. Um, in terms of actual platforms for you to access, if if you're curious uh, to explore, you know, ethical porn and porn that's reality based and seen more through the female gaze, Erica Lust has uh, she produces some great, great mm -hmm. content. There's Make Love Not Porn, and Bijesa uh, also has them. So those are like the top mm -hmm. three in terms of video content. And um, there's a lot of audio erotica out there. I think the mm -hmm. two apps that come to mind for me are Quinn and Dipsy. They've done a beautiful job with their content as well. And there's also a lot of literature. So it's just a matter of, <laughs> and I know less about literature though, but I know that it is a very big market. 
Did you want to say something, Dr. Kate? Oh, I was just going to say that there are countless ways to consume porn. And it's super important to think about if you're a more visual audio yeah. or, or literary preferences. Exactly. Yeah. And the audio porn word is booming right now. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people resonate with that. Yeah, especially especially women, because we're so much more tied to our the emotional connection on average, and we really like to have the context and the buildup. And so for us, the audio uh, porn ends up providing that that experience. Yeah, it makes me also wonder, like, all sorts of health benefits or like mind and focus benefits that you can have by creating that exercise of imagination and, and making these scenarios in your own mind instead of just like looking at the visuals. Mm -hmm. It's probably like the same as like if you read a book or you just watch a movie, you're really igniting different parts of your brain. So I think another thing that sometimes hinders sexual pleasure is always focusing on reaching orgasm. Sometimes some people even experience shame when they don't reach that and they're just anxious to get there. Why is that? What can we do about it? I, I think, first of all, we need to normalize just seeking pleasure for the sake of pleasure, right? Like I'm doing this because it feels good and nothing else. And that's mm. where it allows you to flourish uh, playfully and for you to not take the whole process so seriously and necessarily like have an end goal right. that can really kill the mood if you're so focused on that. There is the other side of the equation where, you know, having an orgasm has a lot of health benefits, like Dr. Kate mentioned earlier in the episode, and you feel so good when you are able to achieve that. So I do think that it's a balance and also just respecting how you feel. Sometimes I will, you know, either masturbate or have sex and I'm not going to be able to reach the orgasm. And I, I do it just because I'm in the mood. That's what I was able to, to do, so to speak. And it was fine. Like, I feel good regardless because I did it for pleasure. You know, sometimes if my partner asks, like, but you didn't, you, did, you didn't come. And for some reason, you know, we're not able to keep on going or, you know, I don't feel like coming. But it felt good. I agree that we shouldn't focus so much on the end goal. But it really is a matter of finding balance. And, and I do think that it's important for women to empower themselves and also searching for the orgasm on their own terms, because it, it truly does provide so many health benefits that, you know, we weren't taught, unfortunately. Yeah. I would agree. Focusing on an orgasm as the goal really reiterates this experience of sex as a performance. And that kind of performative relationship with sex increases the likelihood that we will engage in it from a spectator perspective, instead of from an embodied experiential perspective. And so it's super important to remember that sex is not a performance, right? It's a solo or co-created experience of pleasure. And when we approach it in that way, unsurprisingly, orgasms are a lot more available. But if we try to make orgasm the goal, it's sort of like trying to watch paint dry. You don't know exactly when it's going to happen and you're going to wait a long time. <laughs> so true. I love that analogy. <laughs> Me too. I love it. Historically, we looked at women as like, oh, their pleasure, it doesn't matter. Let's just ignore it. But now I think a lot of men, which is great, they are very worried about pleasuring women, which is awesome. But sometimes they're just thinking in those terms, they're just like, oh, she's not coming. So she's not enjoying this. So there is a middle. It's not black or white. 
That's such a great point. And, and that can actually be one of the biggest thieves of orgasm is when a partner is demanding it from you, either directly or indirectly, politely or not so politely. But when a partner is depending on your orgasm to feel good about themselves, that can make it really challenging to really experience that pleasure for yourself because it feels co-opted. And so when that's happening, sometimes it's important to stop and kind of regroup with your partner and, and provide affirmation in other ways um, so that you can get back to really focusing on pleasure that isn't tasked with supporting your partner's ego in the moment. I love that. It's, yeah, it's not about the end goal. I love it. Um, so I want to also acknowledge sexuality here because we talked a lot about gender and I wonder what are some healthy ways to explore your own sexual orientation and how can individuals overcome societal stigma and embrace their authentic selves? Because we're talking about all of these boundaries and things that we have to overcome, mostly as women. What comes on top of that when sexuality is also a part of that equation? Sexual identity, I should say. Sexuality and sexual orientation often exist um, on a continuum and they're fluid. And what the research shows that's pretty interesting is that people with vulvas tend to have a far more expansive reach for what is pleasurable. And that often um, lends itself into ex the experience of more um, sexual fluidity, interest in people of other genders. And I think if people are questioning um, who they're attracted to, it's a great place to start just being curious. And you might explore different kinds of um, ethically produced pornography to see what your body arouses or what engenders arousal in the body and what excites you. Um, you can talk to other people of different sexual orientations to get a sense of how they knew. Uh, one of my colleagues, Dr. Joe Court, talks about a sexual noticing when we're kids, right? Often there's a curiosity about the bodies of, uh, of people um, of the same gender for queer folks early on. And that doesn't exist sometimes for people who are more aligned on the, the heterosexual part of the continuum. So it can, I mean, we're just really fluid beings. And this idea of a binary is a constructed one. And so I think if you're curious, it's okay to give that space to flourish and to see what feels organic for you because it's healthy. Yeah. I was just going to say, it's it's interesting that when, uh, this is also a quote from my good friend, Dr. Joe Court, he says, when uh, women express same-sex desire, they're often objectified and fetishized. And when men express same-sex desire, they're often ridiculed and shamed, right? And so I think it's really important to remember the ways that we are conditioned to believe we should be. And, and how that can really get in the way of understanding how we could be. And aligned with how fluid our sexuality is, our libido is also fluid over time. And we we kind of think that we're like, you know, we either fit in so one true. category, mm -hmm. but really it just depends on the moment of life that you're in. And so many, you know, almost every factor that you can possibly imagine impacts your libido. So, so it's just, it's important to like be kind to yourself in, you know, in that process and understand that these things come in waves. And also something that has resonated a lot with my audience when I talk about is how we experience desire in different ways. And we've been taught that the most normal 
way for you to experience it as spontaneously because that's how you know 75% of people with penises experience it. Uh, so we were brought up to, to you know, think that that's how it is. And if you don't experience that, that way, then there's something wrong with you. But, um, but there's also a responsive you know, desire, which is when you start getting in the mood after things are heating up, right? And contextual, which really depends on how you're feeling inside and what's going on around you. And, and to a certain extent, we're actually um, all responsive but some of us feel like we're more uh, spontaneous than others. But most most women and people with vulvas tend to fall into the responsive category. And I think it's just so important for you to understand how your desire works because uh, a lot of us feel like we're broken mm-hmm. and you're not broken. It's just your, you know, your desire functions in a different way. Um, so mm-hmm. a lot of people get hung up on that, unfortunately, because we weren't educated around it. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I could not agree more. All right, let's move on to our last question. What does wellness mean to you? Wellness for me means being intentional, right? And paying, noticing ourselves and taking the time to think about from an integrated perspective, so mind, body, the social, the relational how do we create a path of intention forward so that we can take advantage of the resources that we have, find resources that we don't have, and really take care of ourselves optimally. And sexual wellness is a big part of that because our sex is not compartmentalized. It's an integrated part of every other aspect of our existence. Uh, Wellness to me means doing the things that make you feel good for yourself. And whatever that means, it's for everybody, it's different. Um, but it really is taking the time to explore. And you know, what Dr. Kate said, it is to be more mindful and thoughtful of that process and understand that this is something that not only makes us feel good for ourselves, but allows us to show up better to people around us and the things that really matter. That's it for today. If you have questions or feedback, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on social media at PodHer. If you like this episode, please subscribe to PodHer and leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform.